Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Toes on the Line Podcast. It's your boy, Gio Grassi, and thank you so much for keeping up and listening and continuing to listen. And it's already November 2nd. And for some reason, I feel like the spring and the summer did not exist, although we did quarantine through those months. And I did start the podcast in the spring, carried it out through the summer, and now it's the fall, and we're at the midway point. And man, oh boy. Does it feel like 2020 is just a mess? That cold weather just kicked in this week out of no man's land. And it's been raining. And it's been gray skies. And I love that weather because it keeps me calm. I don't got to think about nothing. Nothing to do. Nothing to have to try to do because the weather's good. And I'm living. And on this beautiful day, I can continue to say that New York sports is still in the gutter. And the Buffalo Bills are probably still the best team in New York across all sports, including the Yankees. Anyway, enough about that, man. Let's get into the uh, the shout-out. I want to give a shout-out to Mike Hernandez, uh, intern for me. Uh, was it last summer? Yes, it was last summer, 2019. And Mike did a phenomenal job interning for us. I'm talking about this kid's a grinder. He stuck to it. The kid worked his ass off 24-7, um, never had an excuse. And what have you. I mean, the kids, you know, he's working with the Boston Red Sox minor league system. So he's now become an adversary of mine. But all love still, all love. Needless to say, man, all fanhood stuff aside, all jokes aside, man, the kid works his, worked his ass off for me. Talk about him interning for me. Just to talk about our internship program here. I mean, we, we've had some interns come. Some stand out. We've had some interns not stand out. And it just goes to show who, who wants to be a part of the... Uh, the strength and conditioning world, I mean, definitely is a certain standard to being a strength coach, and you, it's obviously lived through by your experiences and the way you intern. Um, and our internship experience here is pretty pretty different. We want our interns to learn how to do research and present the information. Uh, we want our interns to coach athletes. We want our interns to give us input on what they see in the session and things that they they, they feel can change and become effective. We don't want our interns to just stand around with their mouths shut in the corner of a room and just obey rules that the coaches give them. I mean, I've been in internships like that, and I, I think those were very stupid internships. I'm just going to say it like that. I mean, for you to hire an intern just to clean up the weight room, I mean, by, by all means, just you know, pay someone 8 bucks an hour to do that if you're that petty, honestly. Allow your interns to coach, allow them to learn from you, allow them to learn on their own, and allow them to give you some input because at the end of the day, if you're walking around with this tyrant mentality like you're the god, then you got some self-checking to do. Enough about that. I could talk about that shit all day. Um, today's episode, Kyle McMahon. Kyle is working with the Team USA uh, women's field hockey team. They're actually training and getting ready for the Olympics and all types of competition around the world, man. So they're, they're looking to compete and stay at a high level. And to give you a quick background on Kyle McMinn, because he does talk about it himself in the podcast. But real quick, um, I owe a lot of gratitude to Kyle because he actually went out of his way and hired me as an intern back in 2014 at Fairleigh Dickinson University, where he eventually went on to hire me as a GA. Um, but I basically went to Kyle one day and I said, hey, look. You have something that I want, and that's the CSCCA certification. So spoke to him about being a mentor. He was. He was a great mentor. Taught me a lot about strength and conditioning, especially in a small room where we did not have anything. I mean, the weight room was tiny, tiny, man. I'm talking about this thing was, ah, man, I don't even know, a 1,200 square foot room. 
tiny. I'm talking about three racks, not a lot of floor space, but we got it. We got the job done. We we got the job done. And Kyle really taught me how to treat an intern because he never really treated me like an intern at some other places that I've been to that I won't talk about because I'm just not going to throw anybody under the bus here. But he really treated me as an assistant when I was his GA and he treated me as a GA when I was an intern, if that makes sense. So he really, uh, you know, let me program, let me coach, let me build my own relationship with the athletes. Um, and it was fun. It was great. And the guy taught me a lot. And it, it, it's because of him that I'm at the position I'm at now in my coaching career, honestly, um, to, to help me get my foot in the door there uh, at Fairleigh Dickinson. So um, big ups to Kyle for doing that. Um, right now he's off doing bigger, better things. And enough talking, man, because I'm talking too much and I could talk all day if I wanted to. Yeah, let's get right to it, man. Lock in, load it up, and let's get ready to roll, baby. Welcome to the Toes on the Line podcast. I'm your host, Gio Grassi, and today I'm bringing on a very special guy, Kyle McMinn. Coach McMinn actually led me into the strength and conditioning game at Fairleigh Dickinson University, which was my first stint as a collegiate coach um, outside of being an intern when I was an undergrad. But Coach McMinn, he took me, um, he basically took me as a GA, uh, or prior to that, he actually took me as an intern and a mentor for my CSCCA exam, which I passed first shot. And in the following year, he hired me as a GA, treated me just like an assistant and, you know, had me working my ass off. And Kyle, I appreciate you for doing that because you basically set me up for the future um, and the success that I'm continuing to see now as a coach at Fordham University, where I'm currently at now. So Kyle, thanks for joining. And uh, I appreciate if you take some time to introduce yourself a little bit deeper than I did, man. Yeah, man. Hey, thanks, Gio. I appreciate the, you know, the podcast thing here, man. I think you're doing a great job with it. I think from a large perspective, this is how we're kind of consuming information now as coaches. We're not just always getting into research articles, but we're also listening to things and um, on our way into work or whatever. So no, I think you're doing a great job. But yeah, hey, I'm very, very honored to be here. Gio was one of my GAs at FDU, began in 2009 was the first year I started there. Great school, great coaches, great athletes. And from that perspective, I think it's something I learned a lot from. That was my first head strength and conditioning job. And it was just an amazing experience for me. And I was able to bring people like Gio and people like One Mac in. Square footage wise, what, 1,500 square foot? So we're talking tiny weight room. I mean, it was, uh, we had three racks and a Smith machine. And I think Gio and I talk about, man, we really, we really added value to the room when we took the Smith machine out and added a fourth rack. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> it was like a brand new weight room. Yeah, man, it was it was uh, it was a great a great place to be. I mean, we we, we created an environment in there that I think was special. the The room is going to be what the room's going to be, and I knew at that point um, at FDU that we weren't going to be able to expand our footprint from a you know building perspective. But I think what we created inside the room was amazing. So anyway, yeah, great to be here. I started my career. In the college realm, just like Geo did, I, I was an assistant strength and conditioning coach at Penn State University from 2004 to 2005. That was, to me, one of the, probably the more enlightening experiences for me as a strength coach coming in and, and realizing, you know, you got to pay your dues and I made dirt money and it was a great experience. I worked with, what, 24 or 26 of the teams up there, basically everybody except for football. So I was focused on Olympic sports, excuse me. So I had, you know, the soccer, the volleyballs, the, the, the baseballs, the softballs. And um, I think when you look at that weight room, work, I worked out of East Area locker room, weight room up there. And I know recently that uh, that place has changed quite a bit. So 
after Penn State, I went into New York City and decided to do a little private sector work. So I worked as a personal trainer at um, Sports Club LA on the Upper East Side, which is no longer, I don't think that's even uh, the name of it anymore. I think it's an Equinox, but it was the largest uh, training facility in New York City. Great place. Uh, you know, you, you, it's, a, it's a much different thing when you go from a collegiate strength and conditioning realm than you go into personal training. I mean, especially in New York City. You know, I know, Gio, you, you live around the city. So you go to some, some campus that's like in the country, then you yeah. go to New York City. It's, it's quite an eye-opener. It's it's eye uh, so, so I'm a certified athletic trainer as well. So I did my graduate assistant work as a certified athletic trainer at, at LIU in Brooklyn. So there's a whole other perspective of from a country to the city, you know, right outside our gate, our gate at Brooklyn, there was, there was you know, homeless people and, and just sort of, you know, you, it's this, it's this relationship and it's this kind of dichotomy of NCAA sports. And then when you walk out of the gates at LIU, then you walk right into what real life is for a lot of people. And I'll tell you what, that was an eye opener for me as well. And there's been a, there was a lot of times where the security guards, it was a closed campus. It was right down, I think it was, uh, was at University Plaza, but I can't remember what, right off of, um, I can't remember the name of the, you know, it's a main drive there. Um, but, you know, uh, right off the Manhattan Bridge. And if you try to get out of the, out of the, the gates at night to go out, the security guards would tell you, hey, man, you got to, I don't know where you're going, but you better be careful. So it's, it's, um, you know, so I graduated and took that head strength and conditioning job at, at FDU in 2009. And I was there for nine years, eight, nine years, whatever that was. And yeah, Gio was one of my GAs. He came to me, was a, I think it was a volunteer initially for me and then came on. I, I mean, did a great job. Um, I think it was something that in the, in the, in the time that was what you did. You went and you volunteered and, and you, you paid your dues. And then, you know, look, I mean, if you do a great job, you get hired on and that's what Gio did. And, uh, we worked together, I think, very well. He and I, I think, created a great relationship with not only the students, but the student athletes, but also coaches. And, and definitely, as assistant strength coaches, I brought on a few other people. I had one one Mac there first, actually, and then we brought in. I brought in Christine Cordova, Christina Cordova, and then we brought in uh, Madeline Prado. And I think together we had, we had a heck of a system. Um, so I uh, left FDU, and that was 2017, I think, and. So went down to University of Delaware to get my my PhD um, in in uh, biomechanics movement science, and what I learned down there was that the bar in terms of education for what uh, is being expected of collegiate students and high school students is significantly raised from where it was when I was in school. I don't know about you, Gio, but but I took a my PSAT, I got a terrible score in it. I took my SAT. I didn't do anything about it. I didn't even study. And, and then got a, 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 a terrible score on my SAT and I got into Penn State because I was, you know, I, that's just what I did. And then I really was not necessarily focused on it. But the, student, the students nowadays, man, I mean, they're, they're, they're sharp. I mean, I, I know you see it every day, Gio. Yeah, I mean, shoot, man, these kids got, you know, freaking Google at the you know, tips of their fingers. Man, I didn't have Google until like maybe – Mid college, yeah. You know? I mean, I'm sitting next to and at University of Delaware. I'm sitting in this lab next to this. I mean, they're all amazing people down there, and and she's creating this this um, software program to uh, detect anterior shin angles and and all this other stuff. And it and it's just um, 
And so it was a great experience. I learned a lot. I was the um, co-director of the CARE Project, which is the most comprehensive NCAA slash professional slash military sort of concussion project out there right now uh, being run by uh, a vast array of professionals, but being headed by Dr. Stephen Broly at the University of Michigan. So I basically did all of the pre-post concussion injury testing for each one of the student athletes at the University of Delaware uh, alongside uh, Kelsey Brick, one of, my, mm-hmm. one of the, uh, the other direct co-director. And then we had a few other students that were, were helping us. And between all of us, we got it done. And it was, it was a great project. I was there for a year and my wife was in PA school at the time at Temple University. And you know what, Gio, what we thought was, yeah, I thought yeah, I, I could do that. it. Yeah. Like it was, I was like, I can go down and I'm going to get this done. But I mean, the program, by the way, University of Delaware is no joke. I mean, those guys down there are serious about what they do and they do it, and they do it well. And um, between Althea being in PA school, me supporting her, and me being in, in a school PhD, to get a PhD, it was just too much. I feel like the timing was it, before it was just too much. I was not able to support my wife, Althea, the, the way I wanted to. And so we decided to just do, um, at that point, sort of discontinue. And, and, um, and so I took a job as the director of sports performance at Spookinook Sports, which is the largest indoor training facility in the United States. Um, so I ran a, I ran a, a 10,000 square foot weight room, was a director of sports performance there. I had about 20, 30 employees under me, um, coaches and, and, and so on and so forth. And just kind of wasn't loving where I was, what I was doing. And, um, here I am, I, I, I sort of went on my own. Now I'm sort of self-employed. I'm a contractor officially, but one of my clients is the United States, um, mm-hmm. women's field hockey national team. I train their athletes and, and on a regular basis. And so I'm contracted with them through, um, you know, through an indefinite amount of time while we transition into a new coach. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing now. Uh, excuse me. I'm, I'm the director of strength and conditioning on a contracted basis with the you know, United States women's uh, field hockey national team. So that's kind of where I've come sort of full circle. And, you know, if there's any questions now, but that's kind of where I'm, where, where I am and I'm loving life. I mean, I know the COVID thing probably is throwing a lot of people off through us off. It's still a little uncertain for me, but I was lucky enough to get a contract, um, a contracted uh, employer, uh, although I'm self-employed, but with the United States women's field hockey um, and I'm loving it. So that's where I am today. And, uh, I appreciate having the conversation. Yeah, and real quick, Kyle. Now, are you guys training for the Olympics, or are you training for like standard? Yeah, competition? great question. And the reason why this relationship even started is because in November of last year, there were some Olympic qualifiers that the United States women's national team had to win or had to be successful in it to some degree to qualify for the Olympics that were delayed. Right. So I know I think the Olympics are this year or were they next year, next year, whatever. Um, and the, the issue was they did not perform well, did not qualify, and found themselves out of the Olympics. So every sport sort of has a national team. So I work with the field hockey national team for the United States. So then each national team sort of has to go out and do all these – you have to perform to a certain degree. I, I, I forget all the, the requirements, but but you have to go into the Women's World Field Hockey World Cup. You have to go to – performing pro league which we're in a pro league thing and then you have to go to these qualifiers and do well and then you go to the olympics okay so there's there's prerequisite 
performance. So after they after, after they failed in November, basically at, at the Olympic level, if you don't make the Olympics when you're supposed to, you don't have a job. So I think a lot of people within the organization were set aside. I know the coach, um, the coach left, the strength coach left, um, the and there's a few other people that I think were 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 jettisoned as well and so that's where i came in so now we are training for competition we play in what's called the fih pro league we play okay. against the top teams in the world we have some games coming up in april we don't have a game until april um yeah, plenty of time so, to train. yeah so and we're we're right now just training um i'm training some of our random players eight or ten of our players on a weekly basis um everything else is through team builders sort of remote and we're waiting on our coach to get in here from Australia to get started training our full sort of our tool, our full training environment. So once, once he gets here, yeah, then we train for pro league. And then if we do well in pro league, we do well in world cup, then we'll be in the next summer Olympics, not this coming summer. Gotcha. Olympics. Okay. That'll be, I don't know if you remember, but we had one of the, one of those, um, what, uh, the polar, um, team twos. Remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, you were using the polos pretty heavy, and that's when I started learning about tech and stuff like that. And I'll tell you what, besides that, working at a place like, you know, Fairleigh Dickinson humbled the hell out of you because you had to do a lot with, with, with a little bit that you had. And, you know, and you made it happen big time, you know, and you kind of, you know, helped me um, at this point in my career just be, you know, innovative and creative with just using minimal equipment and getting the job done with a small amount of space, you know? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't Penn State. I remember one time at Penn State when I was a strength coach up there from two thousand four to two thousand five. That you know the, the 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 people that um what was it called um uh, they had they had that um that pro squat that that uh, pendulum. Yeah, people at pendulum. I think Rogers owns them now. I okay. think they backed the truck up, dropped a bunch of equipment off, and said, "Hey, look, give it you know give this a shot, see what you guys think of it." Uh, you know, we weren't doing that after you, you know, we, we, you know, nobody was giving us anything. So, yeah. So, um, so we, I brought in, um, I started you kind of honing my, the ability to, to monitor what we were doing. And, and, um, you know, uh, I think at the time there was, I mean, like there still is catapult, but I mean, they are, um, egreg egregiously expensive and uh, really cost prohibitive for a place like FTU. Um, yeah. you know, so, and I, and, and I also was interested in doing something with a heart rate and catapult, um, even to this day, um, you have to buy a separate heart rate monitor for catapult. Um, you know, they're, they're the experts in, in movement monitoring, but, um, anyway, so I, I researched, um, team two, um, polar team two. I really, I know I wanted some heart rate monitors for soccer and, and, um, you know, and then, so the interesting, what the interesting thing was David Langford was our, um, director of athletics, great guy. Um, and he was a track and field guy. So I figured, Hey, look, I mean, I don't have any budget for, I think, I think that thing cost us somewhere between 10 and 12 grand total. Um, and I was obviously not going to have the budget to purchase that. So, you know, he brought polar in and they did, we did a little bit of a, of a trial with one of our track athletes and David just loved it. I mean, he, you know, yeah. he, he, we had the live training screen on there and Dave, Dave was just eating it up and, and, um, and, and, and he, as well, he should, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing piece. Um, you know, so that's where we started, you know, um, I, I'd give, I'd give the, um, you know, the, the, the women's soccer team, their monitors, every, every practice, every training session and every, every game. Um, uh, and, you know, sometimes I have to go, you know, on a stoppage of play out, out in the field and, and find some of the monitors that 
were ripped off some of the, the you know the straps but um you know and so that's kind of where i got into the heart rate thing um you know and, and that's kind of where i got into okay um how are we budgeting our, our intensities during training weeks where we have two games on a friday sunday which we all know is is, is pretty precarious yeah how are we budgeting our 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 training loads um to ensure success on a on a friday sunday and to make sure come november excuse me come november we're going to be in the race for for a title and that's kind of where that all started i think you were part of it i think we went over a lot of those reports right yeah we, we did and you know, i still got some of those screenshotted reports that i kind of look at and you know continue to dissect to this day just to keep myself you know uh, up to date on that stuff yeah i mean so that so that was um um kind of the kind of the, the kind of the burst of of me sort of um moving in towards a, what i would call a, an exercise physiology role um mm-hmm. and, and i don't know about you geo but this whole like strength and conditioning you know, what, i i always questioned okay what is strength and conditioning what is athletic training what is exercise physiology and what is biomechanics what is movement science um mm-hmm. and turns out they're all pretty much the same thing i mean they're not the same thing but but the, they're just disciplines of the ex, of sort of an, uh, i guess an exercise physiology field so that's where i started to put some of the pieces together of exercise physiology as as a discipline and ex, and, and strength and conditioning as a discipline um to just overall physiology and and um so the polar really helped me with that so yeah and then <clears throat> i think we've talked about this quite a bit and then then you have um you know a lot of these research researchers coming out with that um acute to chronic workload um you know and, and that, re- that research paper by tim gabbett um out of australia um has the athlete returned has the athlete trained enough to return to play safely um and and i think and, and tim and i've had some conversations i was lucky enough to meet him in new york he came into uh, into new york for a uh you know i remember that when you went to go meet him yeah yeah yeah, yeah he he is uh, i'll tell you what he, he he's a a blue collar kind of guy we, we 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 went to some pizza shop shared a couple of slices of pizza and, and um and just had a conversation about what physiology is and what the point of it is and what we're doing and so he he was one of the he was one of the first ones to introduce this whole acute to chronic workload ratio, um, and as a you know I'm, I'm a certified athletic trainer I'm not I'm not licensed and I'm not practicing in a state right now but I'm I'm a right. certified athletic trainer so for me my my goal has always been how do I number one reduce the risk of injury because that's I don't know about you Joe but as a as a performance coach I've always felt that that's my first job. Right. So right. I have to be the, the, your best ability is your availability. So I've always felt the need. I have to make sure these players are ready to play. You know, if they're not playing, they're not getting better at sport. Right. So, right. um, so I always felt that the, the acute to chronic workload ratios were a great, were a great way to ma- great way to map this out. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so we talked about, um, you know, one of the first, I think, I think, Jill, you and I talked about this quite a bit is, is this whole, you know, you know, and just, I'm going to relate it to women's soccer just cause that's what we were just talking about. But okay. So they come in from, these are college athletes, right? These aren't professionals generally. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, so they come into preseason and they go, we do a fitness test, we do this test, we do that test. They're probably not doing much all summer. Like I would say if being generous, 30% of the team did the packet the way we want people to do the packet you know, that we sent home, we spent, we spent hours and hours thundering away at this like 40 page packet, 90% of which nobody even looks at. Right. 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 (laughs) It's like, I I always felt, I mean, now for me, I always looked at it like this. If, 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 if even one person does it, then I think we're, um, we're helping as many people as we can. But at the same time, when they come in, we have to assume, um, you know, they're not going to be doing much and they're sure as heck not going to be running a fitness test the way we're going to run it. Right. With the, especially with the rest that we want to keep them disciplined. At, you know? Right. Well, and especially because now we're going to bring them in in August, <laughs> you know, yeah. August is the start of preseason. It hasn't been, so for them, they haven't trained in August for a year. Right. So, so the, right, right. Different environment. Right. So the first thing that we would bring them into this hot sweltering environment and we have we we run the hell out of them in our fitness test and and they're just destroyed right yeah. um so like you know the last thing we wanted was okay just blow them up on a fitness test and now we can't practice because two of them are hurt we got quad sprain strains we got, we got hip flexor strains um so that's where i started um with with um the coach there eric tp who um has has a great uh, pedigree for success at ftu um and working with, okay, how are we tracking what are we, uh, what we're doing from a monitoring point of view? Um, and, and that's where the concept of allostatic load started to um, kind of resound with me. So with the team, with the polar team twos, the only thing we were getting was internal load, right? We were getting right. heart rate um, and, and heart rate variability. You got, uh, obviously you got active heart rate there and you know, you, that's all you had. I mean, and I think well, we, we were getting speeds on that too, right? I think. Well, that was later. Or was that the other? Yeah, that's when we got the, the other Polar Team Polar, Pro. Got, okay. Got, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So and that's when, so when I was with, we, we had Polar Team 2, I was learning so much about heart rate. What I was learning was I was catching kids. I mean, and look, I, I, I was, it's not as if I'm a doctor here. Look, I'm just a performance coach. I, I'm just, I'm just trying to look at what heart rates are and what's happening. And what I would do is I would go home at night and I would look at, okay, what is the average heart rate for, I would break the sessions up into tactical, technical, and obviously then, um, small sided, whatever we were doing. And then I would, okay. I would look at average heart rate. I would look at, um, max heart rate. Obviously we know there's just with the monitor, you get some blips here on the radar here and there. I would cut some of those out and cut that noise on the, on the, the data out. And I would look okay. at, okay, on a Tuesday, which technically I, I think, um, that was the Mondays off Tuesday was a technical session. Wednesday was tactical. I think at the time, um, on a Wednesday morning on a tactical session, um, what are we seeing heart rate wise? And so what I would do is I go, I would, I would on a week to week basis, look at, okay, Wednesday morning to, you know, October, whatever you were here. Now the next week you were here and I would make, um, some, some, some assessments of, um, you know, why is your heart rate on this during the same activity, 10 or 12 beats a minute higher, you know? And, and I think, um, you know, I think at one point I, I, I was noticing one of our players who generally on this exercise was, well, was generally in the 80% range of their maximum heart rate. And, and uh, I was noticing they're like 88 or 90%. And when I looked at them, 
I was like, dude, she doesn't look, look like she's 90%. Like, I know we have that subjective point of view and it's sometimes wrong, but, but I'm just, I was just a learning coach. So I looked at him like, man, you know, she looks like she's, doesn't look like she's in the 90, 90 to 93% maximal range here. What, what, what's, what's happening here? You know, mm-hmm. I remember I pulled her, I pulled her off the field, um, not off the field, but um, uh, over to me during a water break. And I was like, dude, what, is everything okay with you today? Did anything happen? And she's like, no, man, I, I feel fine. I was like, well, how's your, how's your water intake been today? Have you been, um, have you been like drinking enough water? And so she looks at me and she goes, wait a minute. She goes, I don't think I've drank any, I don't think I had any water since last night before dinner. So mm. I'm like, all right, well, I said, look, um, we'll give you another five or six minutes. Coach will be fine with that. And I want you to take some more water in. You know, we don't want to, we don't want her chugging it and throwing up, but, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. after yeah, it's like puking and okay, great Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Fucked up Kyle. Yeah, yeah. But, but sure enough, after like five or six minutes, she went back in and things sort of normalized. Um, uh. you know, and that, now look, that's a very rare instance that I'm, that I'm going to guess right like that. But I just was learning some of those things. Um, so the heart rate, um, and then and then when you look at heart rate, what you have, what I was starting to break it down was, okay, what am I? What is heart rate? What am I looking at? What, what is the eighty percent range? Why is why are the monitors set to seventy to eighty, eighty to ninety, ninety to one hundred? Well, yeah, it turns out. I mean, that's a pretty. Um, that's uh, basically like you know, there, there's really no reason for that. It's it's. Um, you know, they, they, that they send, they, that Polar sends it to you like that and you can modify it the way you want to, but yeah, but it's, so it's sort of, um, you know, no reason to do that. And then I started looking at, okay, well, what Polar says, well, Polar didn't say that they send it to you as at the maximum heart rate being 90 to a hundred, when actually it should be 93 to a hundred. So I was doing research on right. what, on what, um, what these zones should be, um, which was awesome. I, I had a great time. I mean, I started to learn more and more and more. Then I started to learn what sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system were, what was, and, and, you know, and that the fact that if, if you could disconnect our, 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 our neurological system from our heart, our heart would beat at a hundred beats a minute. Right. Mm-hmm. So you disconnect the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems and our neurology from the heart and it beats at a hundred beats a minute. So, um, so then when you look at the heart rate, the thing that always started, I think that, that really confounds um, heart rate-based training is if I have two people standing here and um, they're, let's just say the like size is just so we're not being, um, don't want to compare apples to apples here. Why is her heart rate being uh, right now at 76 beats a minute? And why is her 64? Um, mm-hmm. And the truth is somewhere between a fitness, um, a parasympathetic and sympathetic um, recruitment balance, um, and and basically somewhere in between, and and obviously it's going to be a function of the neurological system, um, you know. So obviously fitness, we know we know an increase an increased fitness level, um, in, in in terms of a cardiac output, will maintain cardiac output at a lower heart rate. So. Um, you know, so you got to, if, if those two are standing next to one another, if one of them is fitter than the other one, well, they're generally, we, you, you'll see a lower heart rate for that person. But you could also have the 74 beats a minute happy be fitter than the 64. So it, how does it work? So it's really complicated. Um, yeah. Um, and so here's, here's where it gets complicated. And when you read, read this stuff, I, I think this is the tough stuff. So, 
Humans have the ability to recruit their sympathetic nervous system, so fight or flight. And when you do that, increases heart rate and that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Human beings also have the ability to prevent or to, I guess, um, prohibit the recruitment of the sympathetic nervous system. So not only do we have the ability to recruit, but also we have the ability to prevent recruitment of that system. So, okay. so then we have the ability to recruit parasympathetically, which obviously lowers heart rate. And then we also have the ability to prohibit the recruitment of parasympathetic. So it's not like, it's not as if your heart rate goes up because you're, you're recruiting um, parasympathetic or, or sympathetically, but you also, it could be going up because you're, you're not prohibiting the recruitment of sympathetic. Does that make sense? So it, it's, it gets complicated where, okay, so if, if, if your heart rate's going up, uh-huh. you're not always just um, recruiting sympathetically. You could also be prohibiting the recruitment of the parasympathetic system. Sorry, I meant parasympathetic. So, okay. so your heart rate may be going up, but it also may be because you're not allowing your parasympathetic system to be recruited. And, and, and it's not like you do that, you know, on your own. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it's all neurology and those things happen all around us. So when I started l- reading all of that, you really get into Pandora's box about what exactly you're looking at with the heart rate. Um, uh-huh. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, um, you know, you, I think when you start researching it, you find out how, how, how dumb you are. <laughs> I found out how dumb I was about, <laughs> about neurology. How little we know. Yeah. 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 And how little we know. And then I started learning, Hey, what this, what happens here? Um, you know, cause I, I, I you, you probably were privy to some of these conversations, you know, where our athletes will come, Hey Kyle, uh, my heart rate was 90%, right? And hers was 80. Mine, I was working harder. Right. And that's the question that people want to be able to answer. Um, mm-hmm. and, Is it, and sometimes, and real quick, I don't want to, I mean, to interrupt, but sometimes the conversation you had was, Hey, uh, the intensity might not be hard enough for you. That's why you're at 80 and she's at 90, you know, so your heart's a little bit more stronger than hers. You have better stroke volume, better cardiac output, mm-hmm. um, which I remember you teaching us, you know, with some research that we read, you're like, Hey, look, when you're reading these graphs, it's not all about looking at who's in what zone. It's about knowing the exercise you did, the intensity, the duration of it and saying, okay, um, whose heart has improved for this type of fitness and who hasn't? Uh, yeah. I mean, Nigel, and I think that's right. I, you, you, here, here's where we get, here's where heart rate training gets dangerous. I mean, I think I think the the reflex is to look at an athlete and say, "Well, she's working harder than you," and that is to me that is so dangerous to say that, um, you know, because you first of all, when when you look at, I've always believed, or at least as I've learned about this too, I, I started believing this that it, I'm not meant to be comparing person to person with these types of technologies and, and assessments of the neurological system. It's it's mm-hmm. one individual athlete to themselves. Um, Right. You know, because we know through research that two athletes running 800 meters, uh, even at the same time, is going to, even at, I'm sorry, if they, if they complete the 800 meters at the same time, is going to garner a much different heart rate response athlete to athlete, right? So it's, it's for me, dangerous to say, well, she's working harder than you. And I think I've, I've worked with coaches, Gio, that, that, um, and assistants who, have, who, um, you know, if they're, I remember, I think at one session, um, the heart rate dropped below like 90%. 
and the coach yelled at the kid that they're not working hard enough. Like, I, I just don't know that we can be doing that. I, and, and I, I think, yeah. and that's not something I ever was comfortable doing. Um, because each athlete, I think kind of feels that out in their intensity level. So what is heart rate? So I guess where I came to geo is this, is this crossroads. Okay. So here's the heart rate right now. What is it? Well, it's, it's not only the, the, the most reliable indication of intensity at a given time. It's also a good assessment for where a player is at from a wellness point of view. Um, right. You know, um, so it's not all related to performance and, and, um, yeah, so I think we, we had some good conversations back about okay, what are we what are we asking our athletes to do, and and um, you know how hard is how hard are they pushing to, to get themselves to um, to the higher heart rate zones, and and it, you know it was I, I still kind of feel today like it's really hard to put your finger on where you want each athlete to be from a heart rate <clears throat> perspective unless you're studying them, you know. Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, hey, you know, you're that one athlete's, you know, heart rate was at 90 and it dropped below 90 and the coach kind of got on her. But it's kind of like, hey, coach, you know, um, you know, if you want to compare apples to apples, let's, you know, look at, you know, we use me and you, for example, you know, me and you do a, a training session, you know, we'll, we'll do like a 200 yard run. Um, you know, we'll both be at peak, you know, whatever our individual peak is. But after 45 seconds, you probably start to dip into the 80% and I'm still at like 95% heart rate. Now that doesn't say I'm working harder. That just says I'm out of fucking shape. Yeah. You know, like, Hey, Kyle can recover, man. His heart's in condition. That, that's, and that's, I never remember you saying this is what true fitness is. It's not who can make the times and the runs, who can recover from whatever bout of intensity we're giving them. You know, and that's what, that's what I like using these technologies for. I don't use them with any of my teams, but um, if I were to use them, I'd use them the same way you used it and compare, you know, individual to themselves versus, you know, players across a whole team. Yeah, well, I think what we got into at FDU there was was first of all, I was grateful for the fact that um, I was I was able to buy such a what I thought was such an amazing piece of of monitoring, uh, like an amazing tool to monitor with. Um, you know, I, I you know at FDU, I'm like, holy cow! I mean, you know, this thing's fifteen thousand, whatever it was, fifteen thousand dollars, and I don't, I, I game cha- it was a game changer with that women's soccer program, though, right? Oh yeah, I mean, we we achieved some great things. I think it. Um, I think uh, Rick Stanton was um, when I got in. It was Renee Montana, um, and then Rick Stanton take, took over. I think two years in, Rick was a great coach. I think he's still coaching in the Jersey area. Um, he was at Seton Hall. He was the previous head coach at Seton Hall, and and um, and then Eric Teepee came in, um, and we really, I think, we really knocked it out of the park. And I think yeah, Eric, Eric was great, man. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, he was so supportive, and and um, yeah. and that's about the time that I started doing. Um, you know, the true resting heart rate stuff. So, um, you know, I'd have our athletes report to us. And this, and so what I was doing, Gio, the whole time, I, I, we would go to the CSCCA conventions, which I love the CSCCA convention. So great, it's great stuff. Um, and I was learning, I was trying to find out how do I monitor this team um, or, or my athletes, um, you know, and, and with, with a, a short budget. Well, um, the polar thing was huge. So I didn't even think I was going to be able to get that. So that's one way we did it. And then we just did like a, a, a daily readiness questionnaire, something that was, that, that was very simple. I think, I think it was, um, it was a strength coach from university of the pilots who are the pilots out in Washington or something. 
I remember the name, the pilot. Yes, Washington. Yeah, I think. Uh, pretty, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Washington. It's a school, small school out there, I think. Yeah, yeah. But she was, she had it up, and I said, "Hey, man, that, that yeah. that's very simple." I said, "You know," so I, I did some research on it and put it into play. And I, I tell you what, here's the thing: that that um, heart rate and and the the true wrestling heart rate stuff. I would have them take their. I, would, I taught them the carotid method, which any any you know, any person interested could learn in, in a half a second. Um, and I would, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty simple. I mean, it, it comes yeah, with it really some is. subjective error, but, but I just would have them take their heart rate. Um, the athletes take their heart rate after they woke up, but before they got out of bed, before they rose out of bed. And I had them send that into the, um, and, and put that into the, um, the questionnaire and which I would get, um, obviously on the other end of it on a, on a Google doc. So, um, mm-hmm. the, the key thing, Gio, and I, and I think this is where we, we get really stuck in the mud in, in, in the strength and conditioning of sports performance. And what are we doing with the data? Are you gathering data or are you using it to, to make, and this is what Tim Gabbett, when I got a chance to meet Tim Gabbett at, in New York, this is his point of view and, and he's completely correct. Kyle, you have to be able to gather data and then use it to make a proactive decision Yes. Which would otherwise result in an injurious situation. Um, and so what I started putting, I started doing at home was I started running numbers on, on an Excel sheet of uh, standard deviations for, for true resting heart rate when they got up in the morning. By the way, the concept of true resting heart rate, I, I made that phrase up because people just call it resting heart rate. And I don't think it's the same thing as what people understand as resting heart rate. Um, mm-hmm. And so what I started realizing is, and I did, a, there was a, an old track coach and I forget who it was, Gio, but he did this, he wrote in this article and it wasn't like a research article. It was a very, it was a very like, um, you know, um, indescript sort of, um, um, wasn't empirical. It just was stating an opinion. Um, and his point of view was if you get, if you take your heart rate in the morning before you get out of bed, after you wake up, if you are, what the heck was it? I think it was a percentage. I think, I think it was, it was, I think it's seven or 10%. I think. Yeah. It's between five and 10%. Right. If you're 10% higher then you need to have a recovery day and you need to relax and just take a stretching uh-huh. day. And, and while I don't completely agree with that, I mean, there's, there's also, there's some, there's some, you know, some very interesting things that he's, he's stating there. And I, and I think I saw some of that at FCU. I mean, there's, um, you know, we had this uh, center back, um, and I know you remember Kayla Adams, um, mm-hmm. who was just an absolute, um, you know, she was incredible. I mean, she's, first of all, she was a beast. A beast. Yeah. I mean, she was front foot elevated split squatting, by the way, also front loaded. She was 185 pounds for sets of six. Um, yeah, yeah. now she, she was strong as an ox. Yeah, she was, she was, uh, big, strong. Um, what I liked about her too is she was also very intelligent. She, I think she's actually a doctor now. Um, you know, oh, good for yeah, she is, she's, um, she had, she was sort of like the entire package. But, you know, I remember one day, you know, I'm, I'm out there and I'm, I'm, I'm noticing her true resting heart rate values were when I think she was usually in the 60s. And what I started to see, she was in the 80s. It was one week where like there was four or five days she was in the 80s. And, um, mm-hmm. and then what, what I started to notice was she started struggling with weights. Like she was hands down the strongest person on the team. She could deadlift 275 pounds. I think it's actually over 400 at some point. Um, 
And, and, you know, we didn't do a deadlift a lot, but when she did, she was, I mean, there was no joke. I mean, I barely had enough weights. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, in that weight room. Yeah, right? I mean, and, uh, you know, the, it started to become the fact that she couldn't hold the bar with her hands. It started to hurt her hands. Um, yeah. But anyway, so I'm like, man, what's cool? And she started struggling with weights that some of her outside backs and, and then some of our smaller players were, were struggling with. And I, I started to put two and two together. And so, so then I brought her in. I said, Kayla, there's something going on here, kiddo. I mean, you're, 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 your resting heart rate's up by 20 beats a minute. Um, your, your, uh, your weights and, and your, your performance in the weight room is, is down a bit. You're not performing. Like you're struggling with weights that I would expect somebody half your size to struggle with. And, and, and she had mentioned too that she goes, yeah, Kyle, like I'm not. My sleep, my sleep is a little bit off right now. Um, she said I'm more irritable. And then she was also what not playing very well at the time. I mean, um, now, you know, Kayla always had sort of her propensity to sort of be a little bit um, um, in a different world on the field sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. I think as every athlete is, but she, she was she seemed a little less, you know, kind of into it. Um, you know, so we, we we sat down and did a little bit of a nutritional um, evaluation. Turns out, you know, um, she, I think she, she returned, she, she was from Canada. She returned from Canada to, to campus, I want to say three days earlier. And about when these heart rate variations started, um, I think it was, she went home for, I think, four or five days. I, don't, I forget what, it was, I don't know if it was fall break or something. I don't know. It was the spring. I have no idea. Maybe it was spring break. I forget. But, um, and then so so we started talking about her food. She goes, you know, Kyle. She goes, when I went home, my mom cooked everything for me because my mom does that. I come home and she takes care of me. She goes, I feel like I got back onto campus and we don't have any of the food here that my mom was cooking. All all of her stuff, the stuff in the calf. Some of it is. She goes, sometimes I get into the calf and it's it's late. And if you get to the calf late, there's like no food out. Um, no options. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so she was really struggling with. Okay, I can't get to the calf in time to get food. So we, I noticed, like we did a little calculation of her protein. She was getting literally like forty percent of the protein um, that she should have been taking in. Um, so then we put her on a bit of um, me and Scott Fisher, who was the uh, uh, he was a nutritional um, consultant there. We put her on a bit of a um, uh, on a bit of a nutritional plan, and sure enough, within three days, her resting heart rate went uh, four days, I think, went back went back down to kind of an average of seventy. I think 70 or 68, whatever it was. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. And so that's, so that's another, I just kept learning. So there were, so sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say real quick, I was going to say, so would you say the, the increase in the heart rate? So they say like overtraining is, is one thing you'll see a spike in the heart rate. Would you say like her body was in a catabolic state and that's what kind of forced it yeah. into a, you know, a, a hyper, uh, I guess you can call it a hyper resting heart rate. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's a, it's a myriad of things. I think number one, she, um, she wasn't getting enough protein to recover from the training that we were that, that from the training stimulus that I was giving her. So as applying mm-hmm. stress, she was not able. To, she wasn't sleeping very well. So we we know we need that deep that deep wave sleep. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and that happens sort of in ninety minute um, cycles throughout the night. Um, you know, she was sending me her sleep graph, and she was getting, you know, um, I think she was getting like two or three ninety minute. Uh, maybe I think maybe two max ninety minute deep wave sleep cycles a night, which generally she gets three to four, um, you know, so she wasn't recovering. So, um, you know, 
you know, so when you have that happen, you're not eating protein, you're just training. What you get is you get ACTH, which, which produces a lot more cortisol, which raises, which raises the heart rate. And it's right. It's because physiologically and neurologically, you're not recovering. Um, and you're not rebuilding and repairing. So your body is in a constant state of inflammation. So you have the production of inflammatory cytokines, <laughs> excuse me, and, and interleukin-3, um, interleukin-6, interleukin-10, which really um, it, it basically puts the body in a constant state of inflammation. So that's what she was experiencing. Uh-huh. That's that's it. That's interesting. And that's what I'm talking about, where you dissect everything to the finite detail, and you can figure that stuff out through this, through this uh, information, right? This is this is utilizing the data for, you know, like you said, if you're if you're just collecting data, you're just and not using it for specific reasons, and you can find these reasons. That's smart as hell, man. Yeah, but that's the key. I mean, and and there's do the research exactly. And, and look, there's nothing to say that Kayla would have went out and got hurt, but but uh-huh. but and, and but that she's certainly more at risk because she's not optimally performing and and so not only do we but see, here's the thing, man. If we want to win in sports. Like, forget about injury, which I don't want to, I'm not saying forget about injury like it's not a factor. Of course it is. <laughs> yeah, right. But you need to be performing optimally to, to, right. to win. And, and Kayla, the way she was performing, was, that was not a winning, you know, recipe for her. Um, you know, that, that, that's not Kayla at her best. So, um, yeah, so, and, and if, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, when I was down at University of Delaware is the, is the um, um, the, the associate or the, um, I guess it was a co-research um, uh, the, um, director of the CARE project. And, and when I, before I left Delaware, one of the things that they started to do was saliva testing because they wanted to get, um, in terms of concussions, you know, um, so what I would do down there is I would, I, I pre-tested each one of the student athletes um, down there um, for, for, um, you know, they're for the baseline concussion uh, function levels, and then I, and then and then I did um, along with my uh, my colleague and, and a few other really amazing helpers. We would then um, post test all the all the concussions, um, uh-huh. and so and then we I, w- I would do all the it was I think the the markers were you know we, it, immediately after post injury there was a there was a six hour evaluation which eventually got eliminated. There was it was 24 hours and then there was, you know, so there's a whole, there's a whole, um, you know, program of, of evaluations that they had to go through. Um, and what they were doing at the end was they, they did a, they, they, they did a saliva sample because they wanted to find if there's any saliva based biomarkers, um, you know, indicative of what a concussion could be or could produce, um, mm-hmm. which is also very interesting stuff. Um, but when you, when you think about it, Injuries are sort of injuries, right? Are there, are there, and this is what they found out. I think that's what they're continuing to find out. And I think more research is always necessary. But if you strain a hamstring, generally you get a, a, a lot of the same inflammation response if you get a concussion because you have damaged tissue. So you get, you get, you get, um, you know, inflammatory cytokines, you get interleukin, like I said before, three, six, ten. You get, you get, there's more than that, but those happen to be the more predominant ones. Um, okay. And then you have interleukin 10 and interleukin 6, which actually play a huge role in sleep, right? So if, if you have interleukin 6 mm. and 10, uh, an abundance of those, 
and, and I think even three, to be honest, then that is, um, they've been really closely linked to the quality of sleep. Um, you know, so you, when you start digging out, sort of unpacking all of those details, it's like, holy cow, like everything literally is affecting everything. Um, right. and, and so that's kind of why I got into the monitoring that I'm doing and, and, and that I continue to do is because we, as sports performance coaches, I, I feel that we're, we feel like we're in this vacuum where, okay, we're going to squat Mondays and we're going to do this Wednesdays and whatever we're going to do. And I love that stuff, believe me. But, but you know, when an athlete comes in to, to the weight room, they're not like, they probably, maybe they just came from a test. Maybe they just came from a situation where the boyfriend, girlfriend broke up with them or, or they're having some sort of stress or they're not getting enough sleep, you know? So I've always appreciated having some background information of, um, you know, what could be going on here more than just, why didn't you hit the 185 pound squat? I don't get it. You know, there's, right. to me, there's a lot more get, to get, it. Get a you get like you're building a global picture on the athlete. Like you're trying to get everything, their resting heart rate, their sleep pattern, their, uh, you know, wellness questionnaire, you know, perceived on how they feel. Um, Let's, let's talk a little bit about the sleep. Like, what did you do with it? Because I, I do sleep data with my athletes, but what did – and I forget what you specifically looked at um, when you had that with the heart rate, with the wellness questionnaire, and the bioanalytics program that you had at um, FDU. Yeah, I mean, I, I think sleep was probably the, one of the – probably one of the more pivotal things that, that I utilize, especially in season. When you get in season – and I think you and I have talked about this before, Gio, but <clears> – <throat> When you get in season, the heart rate, the, the, the polar monitors, sort of like and from a heart rate perspective and train loop perspective, although it's all important, they sort of fall a little bit in terms of what is emergent, to, to what, is, mm -hmm. what is really emergent to be assessing. And I think sleep and sleep patterns sort of um, ascend over top of heart rate to a degree at, at, at some, to, to some degree. And what I was doing we were using this app called sleep cycle alarm clock. Um, so the, um, and it's obviously looked, I mean, it, it, is it, is it research grade uh, like application? No, but, but you know, we were at FTU we on a budget. I, I couldn't get um, Omega wave in. I mean, come on. Um, you know, yeah. we, had, we, we didn't have any money. It was free on their, on their, on their, uh, their phones. And that's what we did. Um, and so what I, I would have them, send me all their sleep graphs every morning. So they'd have to send me their heart rate and their, their daily readiness questionnaire. And they did have to send me, um, you know, their sleep graphs every morning. Um, and so there were a few players who I knew, who I know um, um, needed three to four um, REM cycles or deep sleep, deep sleep cycles per night. Um, and so what I would look at, I was, I would look at sleep, sleep duration um were they getting so in order to get really eight hours of sleep um of deep sleep you need to be in bed like 10 hours right so nobody's really yeah. doing that um but if we wanted to get three or or um so it's 90 180 so if you wanted to get um four and a half hours of deep sleep you needed to be in bed seven hours minimum right mm -hmm. so that's the first thing i would look at were you in bed for seven hours and if you were not, then there's no, generally there's no way you're going to get four, definitely not four, and three is going to be tough, 90-minute deep sleep um, cycles per night if you're not in bed for seven hours. So that, so 
every day, um, specifically, well, and every day, but I would really be, you know, looking at that on obviously on game days and, and days where I know we were going to be practicing really hard. Um, mm-hmm. That's the first thing. So sleep duration. And then I look at sleep quality. So were you in and out of the deep sleep zone or did you ever touch deep sleep at all? That's the second thing. How many cycles did you get? Um, some players can get two cycles per night and be perfectly fine. Well, other, other, other athletes, um, like one of our midfielders, Dara, uh, needed three to four deep sleep cycles per night for optimal performance. And so what I mean by optimal performance is we found that, um, and between Eric and myself and some of the, the heart rate stuff I was looking at, Dara getting three deep sleep cycles per night as opposed to one or two was optimizing her true resting heart rate, was optimizing her heart rate, um, her relative heart rate at, at relative intensities during practices. And we also, between Eric and myself look, looking at video, found that when she was um, getting more of, of those cycles, three to four per night, she generally was a little more composed on the field and, and performed better. Um, you know, there's exceptions to every rule, Geo. It's definitely not a hard and fast science, but, um, you know, hard and fast science. But look, it, it, um, it's variable, but that's kind of what we found. You know, so, um, so sleep um, duration, sleep cycles, how many 90-minute um, REM cycles are you getting? So, so on the sleep cycle alarm clock, it was it, – it basically it's an, it uses a phone's accelerometer to um, – to judge how much movement is in the bed, right? Mm-hmm. So an athlete not moving, and if, if obviously the lower lower levels of movement is are generates for for however amount of time for ninety minutes, um, limited movement is obviously going to be a, a deep sleep cycle, um, right? So that's kind of what we were doing, and and on days that and there were so what was happening was on days that I know Dara didn't get sleep or whoever, and this happened with every athlete at some point. I go. I, I would send a report out in the morning to Eric, and I'd say, "Listen, um, here are some red flags for today. Red flags, not meaning that danger is imminent, but meaning that this this athlete is is um, not optimally um, recovered." Um, so I know on a Wednesday, which would be a heavy tactical day, um, you know, I knew that some athletes weren't going to be ready for a tactical day on Tuesday. So. And this is what we, I think we did was we, we, we were doing our hard practice days on Tuesday, um, the first game of the day of the week. But what I was saying to Eric was, look, our forwards, like a, a Carly Tice, our forwards like, are not recovering back into, in, into, into um, resting heart rates within 10 beats a minute of their, average, of their, of their mean. Um, and, and sleep is not recovering for two or three days after that Sunday game. So instead of move, instead of having that 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 tactical session, that really hard session on Tuesday, the the, the day after they have that, you know, the NCAA mandated day off on a Monday, we put it on Wednesday. And so what we were finding is right. Okay, we were much more efficient. We we were we we were performing better with the intensity on a Wednesday. We gave our athletes additional day on Monday on Tuesday to kind of get themselves back into a a normal physiological state. And then yeah, so we what we found was. The reason, so, and then I think that year we were doing that, we set the record for the most, I think for the most goals ever in FDU history, I think we gave up the least in FDU history and um, at FDU we're in the NEC Northeast Conference. Um, 
And I think we were up within the top three in conference all time in goals scored. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We were undefeated. We, we didn't lose one game. I remember, I remember that year because we won the uh, conference final. And that was a nasty game, too. But we won, I remember when they, the girls won that. And then they went on to play, I think, Rutgers in the NCAA tournament. And they give Rutgers a fight. I remember that game. Yeah, and and we lost to Rutgers one nothing, one nil. Yeah. yeah, and what happened with the one goal was was uh, you know and look, w- 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 I'll tell you one thing, Gio. W- when you when you study your athletes this this much, they become your your sisters and your brothers. They become mm-hmm. your family, and I can tell you one thing that I started to do. I started loving these players, man. Like they like. Like we, like we're, we're family and, I, and, and everybody, you, everybody uses that term family nowadays. And, I, and one thing I'll say to you is I've talked to every one of the parents of the kids that I, that, that train there. And, and we all were on the same page between the parents and myself and, 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 and the kids. I was there to protect that kid. They knew that I, I had, I had their back no matter what happened. And I was going to be looking mm-hmm. out for them. And, and so what, what ended up happening is we just we just were so close. We were just a great. We, we were like a brother sister. Um, Eric and, and Jason were my brothers, and 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 um, you know we we were uh, we were, even to this day I talk to them. I mean we 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 developed a really close link. They knew what I felt good about Geo is those athletes knew. Um, and I forget one of the athletes told me this. Maybe an Esther or somebody said, "Listen, Kyle, you know why I go, I go out because she knows no matter what I know, no matter what I do, you're going to be watching." You're going to make sure nothing happens to me, and and so we became this real tight knit family. I started loving those guys, man. We and and um, so what ended up happening was like on the goal against um, um, Rutgers, they, we gave them everything they had for like the half. And now Rutgers mm-hmm. was a great team. I think they finished. I think they they. I think they went to the final four that year. Rutgers maybe or the eight. Yeah, they went to. I think you're right. They went to the final four, I believe. Um, and it was it was the end of the first half, and and you know they were attacking us, and our defenders were and defensive midfielders were doing a really good job of repelling it. But it was they were attacking us though. It, it was pretty relentless, and and um, it was just you know just like happens in soccer. One, it was a ball that was played over the top. It got it got behind a center back, and um, you know it got chipped in and that was the goal. It was a sort of yeah, a brain. Fo- a great play. Yeah, It was a great play by Rutgers sort of a, it caught us off guard and, and, um, and it was just a rough. Yeah. And so I, I remember the feeling after that goal, because we knew how good Rutgers was. They were amazing. They were a great team and they, and, and they were so skilled. I mean, they were incredible. They had one player who would do that. Yeah. Who used to do that flip throw in. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, it's funny because you're talking. I'm like, wait, was Rutgers the girl that did the flip throw? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and they were good. And, and, um, but we knew at that point down one nothing at half, dude, this is going to be tough because they are talented. And sure enough, they, they held on for the win. But, um, but yeah, that, you know, so, and, and, and here's the thing, Joe, and this is where I'm going to be completely forthcoming. I am never, ever going to tell you that we were that good that year because of what we were doing with the bioanalytics. That's, that's BS. Like uh-huh. we, we had a, we had a, a, a senior class that year that was like no other. We had a team that year that was historic, that, that achieved things to historic proportions. You know, we, we played and just to, just to, um, to relate this, we played Columbia early on in the non-conference schedule. 
And Colombia is coached by Tracy Bartholomew and Ampan Kiovan Marisar, who were the who I worked with at LIU. I was their graduate assistant athletic trainer when they were at LIU. And we always were in the conference championships at LIU. In fact, I think we won a title. Oh no, we lost in the championship game when I was there from my second year when I worked with them. Um Mm-hmm. And, the NEC. and so we played Columbia. Columbia, by the way, is always a good women's soccer program. They in, in, in the in the metropolitan area, they're pretty good. They're well regarded. And um and Trace and Umpire are great coaches. And so we beat them three to one and we just attacked I think it was three to one. I, I could be wrong, but but we just attacked them. You know, it was attack after attack after attack. And and um and then Carl we, we had a breakaway at the end and Carly uh just ran right through their back line and scored on this breakaway goal. And I remember talking to Tracy and, and Ampon after the game and Tracy looked at me and she goes, Holy cow, Kyle. Like I, I've watched you guys recruit these players like a Carly Tice or, um, um, you know, like a Kayla Adams or, or um, uh, an Esther Rashawn or whoever you can name anyone, Katie Arthur. And she goes, and I've seen how you guys have developed these players. They are unreal right now. Like, you guys just kicked the heck out of us. And I, and I remember, um, and, and Tracy and Ampine are still my friends to today, but I remember hearing that and saying, the reason why this happened is because we kept them healthy. Like, mm-hmm. because we, we prevented something happening that would have, that would have prevented them from getting better. You know, I think we had one ACL in three years there and that, on that, on that team. Um, uh-huh. and that, that, you know, and, and, and so, f- the reason why they got so good is because they always played, always. Um, mm-hmm. So, so what I, what I would tell will tell any strength coach out there is that is if you want to optimize the performance of your players, they can then you have to prevent the dumb injuries that pull them off the field that didn't have to happen. Um, right. And I think we did that a good job of that at FTU um, and with Eric, yourself, myself, one I think contributed to it. Christina. Um, uh, Cordova. I think we all sort of did, um, and Madeline uh, Prado. I think we all sort of played a role, um, but because they were always ready to play, they 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 got good. And now there were times, and I don't think you guys saw this up. There were times where I'd go to Eric and I'd say, Eric, Carly should not be doing anything today. She needs sleep. And, and there were times. And now this is this is the approach that not many people understand. I would call Eric at like six in the morning, or or mm-hmm. sometimes at night. I would call him after a game and I would tell, I would say, Eric, I don't know how open you are to this, but look, Carly, her training load stayed in her distance. She was well over her distance today by literally two miles. Um, can you just have her sleep in on Tuesday as well? Can we just bring her in on Wednesday? There were days that Carly didn't even practice. There were days that like on a Tuesday or that, that um, we had, we had one of our center mids, I think it was um, Stacey uh, Torsha that like, Maybe I figured who else it was. It was somebody else, but the, but they ran like twenty five percent greater distance in one game than what they typically do, and they typically run nine miles, right? So yeah. I was like, Eric, can we just have her? Can we just not bring her in today? Like she's just not going to be ready, and and, and so Eric yeah. would do that. So um, so what the and, and, I, and I think I think that's smart. I mean to cut no, you off, good. but I, th- I think that's that's the best way to do it because I remember with my time with the Giants, there would be time when, um, you know, like you said, you know, a guy might cover some distance, and it's like, all right, hey. Uh, hey, today Old Dale's only taking twenty snaps, you know, in practice. So mm-hmm. whatever the case is, uh, you know, allow the player to you know fully recover. And I think that's genius in in, in your stance for doing that. And Eric for buying in hundred percent. He's smart. He was a great coach. I thought he was 
one of the great coaches I've ever worked with um, at that point in time in my career. Because um, you understand player health. Uh, the player buys in a lot more. The player earns your respect. And it's just everything's mutual at that point. And it's all about, you know, the, it, it, everything works in favor for the athlete's best interest and for the coach's interest to, you know, develop a championship program, which you guys did. Yeah, and, and I think to your point about about Odell, here's the thing: when you, I had I had I had average distance covered, I had I had training load, which was obviously a, an algorithm, a trimp algorithm. I had mm-hmm. h- how many hours of sleeping per night on average per night? Um, how many REM cycles they were getting? Sleep duration. I had true resting heart rate. I had all this stuff, right? So I had a I had a clear picture of what. Carly Tice was doing on a weekly basis. And when there was any, by the way, when there's, there was any deviation from that, I noticed it immediately. Right. And so then I, we would put programs in place to make sure she got back down to her baseline levels. And, and, you know, so if, if, and if Carly being a forward ran a lot of distance, that mean that meant to me that she's going to be more mechanically in like sore. She's going to be sore. So Carly would be sore for like, I, I remember doing this every, every, after every game, after every Sunday game, it was Friday, Sunday games. After every Sunday, it would take Carly at least till Wednesday to stop noting soreness, concerning soreness on her questionnaire. So, mm. you know, so we just made those adaptations and, and we just, and so, and then I think, here's the thing, Gio, then I think you get your, your strength coaches that say, well, you know, players have to be accountable and uh, 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 what are other players going to think if you give a player a day off? Dude, I'll be honest with you. Like, if that's the kind of player that you have, that's going to say that that player is getting a day off, then you have the wrong player. Like, then then you have a player who's um, doesn't isn't looking at the big picture. If 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 you have a player coming to you that says to you, "Well, that's not fair. She has a day off, dude." It's not about her. It's about you. You're here because right. we want you to get better. Don't worry about that other player. Um, right, right, right. And that's the thing that I think that team at FTU Geo had that that I think. Is very rare. They were so professional. They 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 were. That was a great group of girls. Uh, they they handled. It really was. Yeah. They they handled their business and and um you know short of a few things, but everybody has some things happen. Um, in fact, I don't think they had anything happen. But but um, nobody's perfect. But that team handled everything we threw at them, and then when we asked them to do things that they weren't accustomed to doing, they were very professional about it. They understood. Um, and, and, um, by the way, when I call, when I would call, when coach would call Carly and say, listen, sleep in, Carly's like, no, I'm not sleeping in. I'm going to go to practice. You know, uh-huh. like they weren't like, oh, great. I have a day off. I'm going to mess around. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. There wasn't any of that. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's where I think monitoring should be. Um, oh, she was 1256. Um, that's where the monitoring should be. Um, so, I think from that perspective, we need to use this from everybody talks about analytics. Do you use analytics? Well, dude, if you're not gathering information about the performance of your athletes beyond that of a bench press max, then you're probably not. Mm-hmm. Then how do you, what do you know about your athlete then? You know? Right. Uh, right. Definitely. Um, so hey, real quick, cause I, I lost track of time too. You, um, we can wrap this thing up now if you need. Yeah, that'd be great. I, I just have a, I, I got to train an athlete at one o'clock. All right. Yeah. So, um, all right, hey Kyle, man, th- thanks for the information today. Man, it was unbelievable stuff, great stuff. Um, and I think a lot of people could take away what you've talked about today, especially the points on you know individualizing everything, you know, from programming to rest and uh, recovery and whatnot. Um, 
real quick, um, if anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way they can reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say, I'll just email is probably the best thing for me. I mean, I think we're all clued into the email right now. Um, so it's you can use my first initial K, um, and my last name, which is M C M I N N, um, and uh, at, at USA Field Hockey. Um, actually, use my Gmail account, my personal Gmail account. Don't use that one. So it's it's um, first name K Y L E, middle initial S as in Scott. And my last name is M-C-M-I-N-N, McMinn at gmail.com. Um, so you can email me and I'd be uh, more than happy to email back. Yeah, I mean, I love talking shop, so that's it's all good. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, Kyle's extremely smart, knowledgeable and all this stuff. So, uh, you know, don't be afraid to ask a question that he can't answer because I bet you he'll find, a, <laughs> he'll find a way to answer it. But, hey, Kyle, last question before I let you yeah. off, man. If you weren't coaching today, what other career would you be doing in your, in your, uh, your life? Holy cow. I mean, that's a great question. I, I think probably, uh, I'd probably be training for Ninja Warrior or something. <laughs> Yo, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, man. You're crazy, man. But hey, Kyle, man, thank you for coming on today. I know you got to head out, but I appreciate everything, brother. And uh, we'll definitely keep in touch, right? Yeah, man. Hey, anything I can do. Thank, thanks a lot to you. It's great to see these podcasts. I mean, it's, it, uh, this is important stuff and, and it's a way for everybody to kind of get some knowledge and also just to hear some casual talk and strength and conditioning. I've always felt that like nobody wants to, nobody wants to say the dirt or nobody wants to say, give anybody away their, like their day to day, you know, their day to day activities. Well, look, I love the cash. This, this, I think this avenue kind of gives us that ability to do that. So thanks for doing that to you. Yeah, definitely. No problem, Colin. We'll, uh, we'll definitely do this again, big dog. All right, man. Thanks, man. Take care. All right, man.